know, God has been accused of many things, of being many things throughout the years by many people. And I'm sure you've heard many of the things that God has been accused of, many of the accusations against him. Firstly, God is unbelievable. Atheists say that. He is unbelievable. Atheists are sure of two things. There is no God, and they hate him. That's the two things atheists are sure of. So he's unbelievable. That's what he's accused of. And, and if some people think he is actually believable, then he's been accused of being uninvolved. That this God created things, spun it off, and is uninvolved altogether. And maybe if he is involved, then this God is uncaring. Why is there world disasters? If he is involved and there's natural disasters where a tsunami will come in and wipe out a thousand people, God is not involved in the world. And if he is involved, then he is certainly uncaring and unkind. He's unkind because why do kids get sick? Why do people suffer? God is so unkind. Furthermore, people accuse God of being unfair, allowing quote-unquote good people to go to hell. That's unfair. God is unloving. That there is a hell even existing shows that God is unloving. That God sets a line and says, if your desires are off of this, then you deserve judgment. People say God is unloving. But most of all, and you know what, maybe sometimes in our own hearts we, we would accuse God not so openly and blatantly, but sometimes we might think God's unfair or unkind in a situation. But there is this, in our text this morning, there is an accusation that Paul is going to answer. And it's that God is unfaithful. Some people accuse God of being unfaithful. Like he's made a promise, he's said in his word these things, and it seems that he's doing something very different. God is unfaithful. He breaks promises. He's not loyal. That's the accusation our text this morning in Romans chapter 11 is going to face. So if you'll turn to Romans 11, we will see the word of God tackle this accusation against himself. Romans chapter 11. And verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 1 begins by saying, I ask then. And you remember, uh, when the Bible was originally written in Greek, there was no chapter breaks. There wasn't a chapter 11. There wasn't a verse 1. It was one continuous letter. And so Paul says this sentence, I ask then. Has God rejected his people? Then, what is the context? Why is he asking this question now? Why is this here? How would the original audience, who is having this letter read to them at churches in Rome, how would they say, okay, we're tracking with you, Paul. 
that, that we understand that maybe it appears as though God has rejected his people. So Paul asks this question. I ask then, what is the context? How does he get to this point? It's all based on what he said in the last two chapters. In Romans, it's really interesting. The way it flows is Romans 1 through 8 flows nicely. And then you could pick up 12 and put it right there and it would flow perfectly. But Paul interjects Romans 9, 10, and 11 as a sort of detour, but it's necessary. And so here in 9 and 10 and 11, he's dealt specifically with salvation and, more so, salvation of Israel. And so, out of that, he asks this question, I ask them. Because he's been talking in chapter 9 about his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, his Hebrew brothers and kinsmen, saying the vast majority of them are not saved. They're not saved. He says in Romans chapter 9 that that the Jews view Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the only way to God, as a stumbling stone. They're, They're falling over him. They don't believe in him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 3, it says of these Jews that they are ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. These are the ones. So what are they to do to be saved? Romans 10 also tells us, call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus. Not looking to their own righteousness, but but trusting in His. Deny their righteousness. Trust in Jesus' righteousness alone. Believing and relying upon the gospel. That Christ has come, God in the flesh has come, lived a perfect life, died a death for sinners, so that their sin might be punished, and now lives victorious. They must call upon that Lord Jesus, believe that gospel, and if a person does not trust this, then Paul rightly grieves the fact that they're not saved, and that they will be punished eternally in hell. They'll remain in their sin. So Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the saving one, is right before them. And how do they treat him? How do they respond to him? How do they approach him? Well, there's so many examples in the Gospels. One example of Jesus and how the Jews responded to him, a vast majority of Jews, not all, of course. But John chapter 10 says this, 22 to 31. It says, At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about who I am. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews' response, they picked up stones again to stone him. That was a response to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the saving one. They wanted to stone him and kill him because they knew that he was equating himself to be God. That he was the Messiah, he was God in the flesh. So they wanted to kill him. 
He was right before them. This is how many responded to Jesus. And it continued into when Paul was writing this letter at Rome. They were hostile to Jesus. They would never trust in him to be the one to rescue them. Look at how lowly he is. Look at how weak he is. He's not the mighty warrior king they expected. So he wouldn't rescue them from their sin. They were not going to trust in him as their redeemer and their savior. So, in their rejection of Jesus then, what is their end? The Bible's clear. The Bible's crystal clear. Their end, if they do not trust Jesus, is eternal judgment in hell. So then Paul, rightly, at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, this detour he takes, says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. That's what belongs to them, is the promises. So, he even finishes that section in Romans 9 by saying, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Similar thought to Romans 11.1. Has God rejected his people? Has his word failed? Has what he said not held up? Because what did he say? What did he say to these people, uh, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews? What did he say to them? Deuteronomy 7 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are numbered on the face of the earth, and it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and shows you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He's keeping an oath. He's keeping a promise. That's why he chose those people. That's why he chose Israel. That's why he loved on them. So then, when Paul is anguished because he says, my kinsmen are not saved, then he must ask the question, has God's word failed? Has God rejected his people? Because seemingly, all that's going on now is God is reaching the Gentiles by the thousands and not the Jews. So has he rejected them? Has he finally, after all those years of sending prophets, has he finally rejected them and said, you know what, enough's enough. I'll find a new people. You're no longer my people. Has he done that? Has he rejected them? And in so doing, if he has, then he's broken his promise. He's broken it. Because he said they will be his people. He will restore his people. He will give his people a future. And he spoke specifically of this ethnic Israel So has he rejected them? Has he finally cut them off and therefore been disloyal and dishonest and unfaithful? Is that who this God is? I ask then, he says in one, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Speaking of ethnic Israel there. And his answer, by no means. Another way he could say it, because it is such a um, solid answer, is 
You can make it a statement. God has not rejected his people. And Paul does that himself. He says, God has not rejected his people. Well, where's the evidence, Paul? It doesn't seem as though God is reaching his people at the time of this letter to the church at Rome. God's not doing a great thing among the people of Israel. So where's the evidence that he actually still loves them, that he's actually still faithful to them? Where is your evidence, sir? And he says, has God rejected his people? By no means. Here, here's the proof. For I, myself, am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, God's not rejected Israel because I'm saved. He converted me. He rescued me. And I'm a part of Israel. And so he has not written off all of Israel. Not totally, because I'm here. God has spoken to me. God has rescued me. He's ransomed me. I myself am the living proof that God is faithful. Even just one. But Paul goes beyond that, because some people could question, you know, well, is it based on just you, Paul? And he goes and he brings up further evidence of, of how we know that God is doing things outside of our understanding and comprehension for his people. Well, he concludes, obviously, again, he says, therefore, God has not rejected his people. Because he, um, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, he has been saved. So God has not rejected them. Verse 2 says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He, he already had an intimate relationship with this people, and he's not rejected them. And then he brings up further evidence and further proof Look in verse 2, it says, do you not know what the scripture says? That, pause, that's an insult right there. When, when God, through a person, the Apostle Paul here, says, and there would likely be Jews reading in, listening in to this letter here, do you not know what the scripture says? Of course they did. They knew what the scripture said. And even the Gentiles of this era would have been well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Lots of Gentiles went to temple on a regular basis. They would know what the scripture said. And so when Paul says, do you not know what the scripture says, it's going to arouse something. Okay, let me search my mind. What does the scripture say? Then he brings up this example. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Everyone knew Elijah. How he appeals to God against Israel. He said in verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. So he's appealing to this further evidence that, that God is doing something among this people. He says, here's Elijah. Elijah thought he was the only one left and that God had abandoned the people. That God had completely, utterly cut them off and said, no more Israel. I've had enough because of what they've done. And, Israel, and Elijah rightly accuses them of what they did. They worship false gods. And so he says, surely God, you've cut them off. I'm the only one remaining. You've, you've rejected Israel, was uh, Elijah's accusation as well. But, gotta love the but in verse 4. But, what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've done it. I've kept myself 7,000 men. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. He kept a remnant, like a small portion. So 7,000, we think that's a pretty large number, not comparison to the amount of Israelites that were living. 
There'd be millions. And there's 7,000. So Elijah felt alone. He said, I'm the only one. He's the only one he knew that was actually still following God, that was actually true to God, had not bowed down to the false idols. And he said, I alone am left. God said, no, there's, there's 7,000 you don't know about. You haven't seen them. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because there will often be um, us and our families, us and our neighborhoods, missionaries in foreign nations and go, we're the only ones. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus feels very isolating. When, when you look around and everyone else, according to your own language, everyone else is following the world. No one else is following Jesus. I seem to be the only one left. It's not true. Even, even churches sometimes get that mentality, right? Like, we're the only church left that's preaching the gospel. Because it's lonely. And that's what happens when you get lonely, when you get isolated. You think, we're the only ones left. But praise God that for Elijah, he, he gave them assurance. No, I've, I've kept 7,000 others. And that's how the remnant was kept. How is it there was a remnant? How can they ensure, even Paul using this example of Elijah, how can he say that this isn't just a fluke? Because how do we know there will be this remnant? That in every era there will not be a, a zero Jews who have followed Jesus? That zero Jews who have by faith in Jesus belonged to God? Well, that will never be. There will never be an era where there is no ethnically Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. Because the same way there's a remnant that in Elijah's day, is the same way there was a remnant in Paul's day, there's the same way there's a remnant in our day and in the days to come. How is there a remnant? You read the verse. It says, verse 4, I have kept for myself. Who is this I and myself? This is the God who made a promise. This is the God who was faithful. A God who said, I will love them with an everlasting love. I have kept for myself these people. I have done it. God is the keeper of souls. He is the promise maker and the promise keeper. That is God. It's amazing because oftentimes we view God through a very human lens, right? We think, yeah, you know what? People have told me they've kept their promises to me and I found out later they lied. Or people who were supposed to be faithful to me were not faithful to me. Or people who said, you can count on me, I could not count on them. So we often view God through that lens. We say, yeah, yeah, God, yeah. But God, again and again and again, is showing his faithfulness through and to his covenant people. So we ought to be glad for that. We ought to praise him for that. That even if Paul, even if Paul was the only ethnic Jew at his time, God had not rejected people. Therefore, he had not broken his promise. And he was not unfaithful. God has kept a remnant. And so he says, so too, Paul speaking again, so too, verse 5, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There's a remnant. And so he's just done grieving in chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's grieving in anguish over the fact that his kinsmen kind of painting a broad stroke. Israel does not follow God. Israel's not saved. He's painted a broad stroke. And it could almost depress people or make people think that God's unfaithful. But he says, no, no. Just like in Elijah's time. Just like in Elijah. God has kept a remnant. So too now, he's kept a remnant. He's done this thing. He's still faithful to his promise. 
But what's amazing is this remnant, this, this promise is not based upon their actions or their doings. So interesting because even the Jews of his era, Paul's era, believed that there was, in a sense, a remnant, a, a group of true believing Israel. They really believed that. And the way we know that is because there's different um, sects or different um, uh, subsections of the Israelites, right? So if you're reading through the Gospels, you read of people called the Sadducees. And you'll read of people called the Pharisees. And so these different subgroups of Israel, of Jews, they thought, we are the true Israel. We are the chosen ones of God. And so they also believed that there was this remnant, this select few that had not bowed to some other way. And so then that's why they were so adamant against Jesus. They thought, no, that's just another way. That's why they called him the way, and they accused people of following the way, because it wasn't what true Israel would do. So they, even at their own time, they believed there was a remnant. But Paul clarifies how that remnant is set out. He sets out the boundaries for that remnant. How are people included? How is there this true Israel that he spoke of in chapter 9? How is there these saved people in chapter 10? Well, he says it here again on repeat. There is a remnant. They're chosen by grace. They're by grace. It's not because of a certain family line, which is amazing. So Paul starts by saying, I am an Israelite. Uh, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So some people could wrongly conclude, oh, because you're a Benjaminite, that's why you're elect. That's why you're one of God's precious people who he's kept for himself. And Paul says, no, I reject that notion. It has nothing to do with me being from those people. It has everything to do with the grace of God. Everyone who is a part of this remnant, who is still under the faithful promise of God, is by grace and grace alone. It has nothing to do with who they are, what family they come from or what they've done in their life, what laws they've kept, it's not by that. It's by grace. And that's encouraging for us to know that this God has always and always has and always will and always continues to operate by grace. Unmerited favor, whether it was the people of Israel, whether it's you and me, whether it's your neighbor or your unbelieving family members, it's by grace that he so calls people to himself and saves them from their sin. It's by grace. At the present time, he says there's a remnant of this Israel who, who truly believe, even though the vast majority we ought to cry over and be in anguish over because they haven't seen it. They stumble over Jesus. They insist on their own way, and they are not saved. But he says, be encouraged. God is faithful. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and that applies to us too. At the present time, there is a remnant of ethnic Israel, of Jews who are chosen by grace, who belong to Jesus, and have access to God through Jesus. And we ought to celebrate that more. Because it tells us of the faithfulness of God to his promises. So then when you come to the Bible, and you come to the 101 Bible promises, you go, you know what, God God is so faithful. God is so true. God has never once broken a promise. And this, this is one small example of how he is a faithful God. He has, he is, and he will keep his promises. That's what's great about him keeping his people. How he has done it gives us hope. It's not because of humanity. 
and what they've done and what they've been able to accomplish, but it's by his own purpose, his own end, his own will, which is perfect in all of its ways. And this hope is not just for the ethnic Jews. It's not just for them hoping in this promise of God. Praise God for that. But we also remember, we don't know how he's saving souls in your family, in our community, in the nations. We don't know how he's doing it. And sometimes we can be in despair of our own families, right? We can be in despair of our community. We can despair over countries and whole people groups who've never heard the gospel. We can despair them. But we can remember that by grace, God often has this remnant which we don't see. We don't know about. Even in your own family sometimes you think, I don't know, is there anyone in my extended family? I've felt that way many times. And then I've seen over the years God bring some of my cousins to faith. And I'm like, praise God. Like, I thought I was the only one in my entire family. In my cousins, I was the only one. And then out of the woodwork, Ten years later, comes my cousin comes to faith in Christ. I was like, oh, right. you kept a remnant. I'm not the only one. There's maybe not 7,000, but there's two of us. And so you ought to be encouraged as well. In your family, in your community, often we look at the darkness and we think, is there any hope that God is actively moving in this community and saving people? And there is. There is hope. Paul mentions it in Elijah's time. He mentions it in his time. And we have that hope for our time. God is faithful. So then the question is, do you know the promises of God? So if God's faithful, great. We know the promise to Israel is very clear, that he's going to keep a remnant, he's going to save ethnic Israel. But do you know other promises of God? Do you know what he says he'll do for you? What he says he'll do for your family? Do you know some of the promises of God? And if you don't, I encourage you, read the Bible, search for promises. There's a great resource. It's not a very well-known book, but it's called Take Words With You by a pastor in Ontario somewhere. His name's Tim Kerr. Take words with you. And all it is is scripture references. Scripture. And he has a whole section in there of the promises of God and how to pray the promises of God. And all it is is scripture. He doesn't add his own words. And it's precious because you see there, and they're not ripped out of context. They're appropriate and properly footnoted. But you see the promise of God. And and when you approach that, you go, yeah, right. But when you again and again, study the description, you go, wow, God has been faithful to his people. That ought to remind you. Because you read of those people, Israel, you see how they treated God again and again and again, even as a whole nation. You know, they rejected God as their king. They wanted their own king, right? God was still faithful to them. They, and you read the book of Hosea, and he really paints a picture of what that meant to him and how that hurt him, how... The people of Israel were like a wife who went and slept with another man and paid another man to sleep with him. That's what the book of Hosea is all about, is this picture painted of Israel and how Israel um, sold herself in prostitution to other gods. And yet God still provided for her, still was with her, and still loved her. Read the book of Hosea if you want to know that God is faithful. Read Hosea. And then approach any other uh, promise of God in Scripture and go, wow, God, if you were faithful to them in that, you're faithful when the scripture says, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and he will give. That's a promise. That's a promise. And God is faithful to his promises. Or, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. That's a promise. Through Christ, it's a promise. So we realize that this, even the beginning of Romans chapter 11, in this whole section where he's talking about 
uh, salvation in Israel, we can see and be reminded that God is faithful. So he asks this question, has God rejected his people? Another way to ask it is, is has God been unfaithful? He answers by saying, by no means. Never. Never. It may never be so. It's the strongest word in the Greek as to reject that idea. It is not possible for God to reject his people because he makes a promise and he keeps it. And then we as the people of God rejoice in that. God is faithful. Let us rejoice and let us pray. Oh God, you are an amazing God who made all things and you deserve our praise at all times and God we don't praise you as we ought and we confess that we have sinned against you again and again uh, even today and yet one of the promises you make in your word is that um, if we call upon the name of the Lord and we confess and we believe then we may be saved we may be rescued that, that Christ would take our sin upon himself and it would all be paid for, that we may live a life in the righteousness of Christ, stand before you um, declared holy. God, we don't deserve that, but we realize it's your grace. That's how you've always operated, by grace, not favoring people because of what they've done or what family they're a part of, but you're just gracious. And so God, we thank you for the reminder of your grace that even in our own lives that we have your grace and you're faithful. You're faithful because you made a promise through Jesus. And even to our families, God, it's not if someone can turn themselves around, but instead, if you would keep for yourself, if you would so rescue them, God, we trust you by grace to, to operate, and we are so thankful. So God, would you help us then, as we read your word, as we become people who devour your word, who uh, chew on your word, who meditate upon your word, that you might show us your promises and, and how they would rightly apply to our lives and we would have a community to help us understand those promises right, but uh, we would also have community to remind us of your faithfulness. And we thank you for this text this morning that shows us that you do indeed keep your promises, that you've not rejected your people, that your word has not failed, that you are indeed a God who is faithful. And we're so thankful for that. So God, we want to praise you. We want to live in light of that faithfulness, trusting in you more as a result of understanding your faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.